Please turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 4. This may seem to you like an unusual uh, passage for me to select as a guest pastor, but let me explain why I'm using this this morning. Uh, Recently, our pastors in First Imad started a series of messages on the book of Judges. The first was an introductory message. Uh, Then there were several messages dealing with the judges, uh, Othniel and Ehud. And last week, Sunday, I was asked to preach on Deborah, one of the judges that uh, is referred to in chapters 4 and 5. And so that's what we're going to be looking at together this morning. It's a rather lengthy passage, and so instead of reading it at the beginning... What I'm going to be doing is reading a few verses at a time as we go through uh, this chapter and commenting on these verses as we uh, go along. So keep your Bibles open throughout the, the message as we reflect on Deborah, one of the prophets that God sent to give guidance to his people Israel during a difficult time in their history. Last week, Sunday, we celebrated the 245th birthday of the United States of America on July 4. And while we are thankful for the many blessings that we enjoy in this land in which we live, we also have some concerns on our minds. For example, from 1937 to 1998, the average membership in churches throughout the United States was around 70%. But in the last two decades, that has changed radically. In the last 20 years, the average membership has now fallen below 50%. Thankfully, redemption is possible through Jesus Christ, who redeems individuals and families and whole cultures through the power of his word and spirit. And he can use you and me as he used Deborah to make a difference in the society and in the community in which he has placed us. But the question is, how? How can God use you? How can he use me? How can he use the likes of ordinary people like us to put a broken world back together again? This morning, as we look at Judges 4, we see how God used a mother in Israel to restore her nation during one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. We begin by reading verses 1 to 3. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. As long as Ehud judged Israel, the people remained faithful to the Lord, and they prospered. But when Ehud died, a fresh outbreak of idolatry took place in the nation of Israel. They turned away from the Lord their God to serve false gods, and their rebellion began a new cycle that quickly brought divine retribution on the nation. 
the God who had freed Israel from the bondage of Egypt two centuries before, now sold them into the hands of Canaanites as punishment for their idolatry. And the focus here in this chapter is on a northern coalition of Canaanites united under Jabin, king who reigned at Hazor. Joshua had conquered and burned Hazor about 150 years prior to this. But the city had been rebuilt by the Canaanites. And now it had been restored to a position of dominance once again over northern Galilee. And throughout this time, Sisera oppressed the Israelites. All of this in judgment for their idolatry and their sin against God. It was Cicero's war equipment that the Canaanites had that frightened the Israelites. 900 chariots of iron were formidable and frightening weapons, enabling Cicero to control the valleys and the plains of northern Israel. Humanly speaking, it was a hopeless situation for the Israelites. A nation without arms was helpless before a nation that was armed to the teeth. The Canaanites outmanned, outgunned, and outpositioned the Israelites. And they oppressed them severely and for an extended period of time. In fact, it says in our text, for 20 years, Sisera, Jabin's general, oppressed Israel. Now, I find it amazing that, that Sisera cruelly oppressed the Israelites for a period of 20 years before they decided to seek help. 20 years Twenty years was their limit in suffering because of their rebellion before they decided it was time for them to seek help and to get right with God again. I wonder, what is your limit? Twenty years? Twenty months? Twenty days? Twenty minutes? The choice is yours. If your relationship with God isn't firing on all eight cylinders, then you're the one who gets to choose when enough is enough and when it's time to get right with God. And I would venture to say that every one of us here today is facing some kind of challenge in our lives for which we have the opportunity to say enough is enough. I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to take care of this problem in my life. And that's the kind of decision that puts you on the road to victory. The Canaanite oppression was severe and extended. This desperate situation finally brought Israel to their senses after 20 years. And they cried out to God in repentance and asked for forgiveness, and then they waited. Because nothing short of a divine miracle, nothing short of divine intervention would help. And a miracle did come in a very unexpected way. 
We read in verses 4 and 5. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. These verses introduce us to the person who is going to bring restoration and renewal to an oppressed nation. And to the surprise of many, the leader was a lady. Deborah, as a matter of fact, is the only woman in the Bible appointed by God to be the national leader of Israel. She was an exceptional woman with extraordinary gifts of leadership. Deborah was a prophetess. As such, she received revelation from God, and then she delivered that message to the people of God. That message could be concerning things in the future, but it could also do with, deal with things going on right here and right now in the present. As a prophetess, Deborah joined the ranks of a limited number of other women referred to in the scriptures. Miriam, the sister of Moses, mentioned in Exodus 15. Huldah, a prophetess in the days of Josiah, referred to in Kings. Anna, who gave praise to God for the birth of the Messiah, Jesus. We read about that in Luke 2. And the four daughters of the evangelist Philip, mentioned in Acts 21. Before Deborah became a leader in Israel, she was a homemaker. She is introduced to us simply as the wife of Lapidoth, even though she had a prominent position in society, even though she had a significant leadership role in the nation of Israel, she is simply introduced as the wife of Lapidoth. In other words, she assumed her proper role in the home and the family. She was a homemaker. She took care of things for the family in her home. Today's Christian career women should seek that same kind of balance. And Deborah was a judge. Only other, one other person in the Bible was both a prophet and a judge, and that was Samuel. As judge, Deborah was the political and judicial head of the nation of Israel. Holding court under a palm tree in the hills of Ephraim, some eight miles north of Jerusalem, Deborah heard disputes and handed down legal decisions. Deborah was a leader. Describing the desperate situation of her people, Deborah says in Judges 5, verses 6 and 7, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. Villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose, a mother in Israel. The sad plight of Israel demanded a leader, and Deborah was there to provide leadership. She was there to fill that gap. She did it by proclaiming the word of God. And that's what you must do if you want to 
Have God use you in a leadership role to put your broken world back together again. Don't tell people what you think. Tell people what God says. Tell people what God tells us to do in his word. Share God's word with people who come to you for guidance, for advice, because the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. The power is God's word, not your word. Share with people the word of God. You don't have to necessarily explain it or define it or defend it. Just share with others what God says. Whenever he gives you the opportunity, whenever that moment comes when you can share God's word with others, he can use that opportunity to change lives and to change cultures. But that means, of course, first of all, that you have to be a student of the word yourself, and you have to read and study and apply that word to your own heart and life, and then you can share it with others. If you want God to use you to put a broken world back together again, first of all, proclaim his word. And then provoke trust in that word. Incite people to believe in God's word. Rouse them to rely on God's promises and to obey the commandments of God. And that's exactly what Deborah did. Her name means honeybee. And like a honeybee, she provided the sweet nectar of the word of God. But she also had a stinger. She could needle people to put that word into action. And that's what we find in verses 6 and 7. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Nathali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go and gather your men at Mount Tabor? taking 10,000 from the people of Nathali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Once assured of God's plan, she moves quickly to put it into action. Knowing that she would need a soldier's help, she summoned Barak from his home in Kedesh. Speaking as a prophetess on behalf of God, she directs Barak to muster an army of 10,000 men at Mount Tabor in the northeastern part of the Esdraelon Plain, opposite Sisera's headquarters about 20 miles to the west. Deborah encourages Barak by declaring the promise of God. I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. For whatever reason, Barak hesitated. Even in the face of God's command, even in the face of God's great promise to him, Barak hesitated. Was he timid and afraid? Did he lack faith? 
Was he afraid of Sisera's 900 iron chariots? Deborah reminds Barak of what God has said. Trying to prod him into action. And how does Barak respond? He says to Deborah, I'll go if you go. In other words, I'm not sure I can win this battle without you. Verses 8 and 9. Eric said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kedesh. Now try to imagine the cultural context of this historical event. This was 3,000 years ago, not last week. And here is a man, a leader among men, a mighty warrior, a great general, and he is requesting a woman's help in battle. This is impressive because many strong men aren't willing to ask for help. They don't want to request help from anybody, especially from someone who, with whom they may have to share the credit. We want to win, but we want to do it all by ourselves. We want all the glory to come to ourselves, and that attitude prevents us from experiencing the fullness of the power of God. But General Barak was savvy enough to know that he couldn't do this all by himself. He knew that he needed help. And that was okay, because for him, getting the victory was more important than who got the glory for that victory. There are three very difficult but powerful words that every believer needs to say at some point in their lives. I need help. Barak latched on to Deborah because he knew that the Spirit of God was on this woman. He wanted her on his team, or he wanted to be on her team, however you want to put it. Either way, he doesn't want to let Deborah out of his sight. He needs her. And here's the principle. If you want to experience God's victory in your life, surround yourself with people who walk in victory. If you want to experience God's power in your life, surround yourself with people who know the power of God. Deborah agreed to accompany Barak in battle. But she indicated her displeasure over his adding a condition to obeying God by announcing that the honor of the victory would go to a woman rather than to Barak. Barak paid a price for his reluctance to do the will of God and leaves us a lesson to remember. 
God honors prompt and unquestioning obedience to his commands. With Deborah at his side, Barak gathered an army of 10,000 men to Mount Tabor. Deborah was the only woman among this large number of soldiers, but she was the commander-in-chief of this military force. We read in verses 10 through 13. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to the Kedish. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the Okins and Ananim, which is near Kedish. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Hegoim to the river Kishon. Kedish is near the place of battle, and Heber's wife is going to play a prominent role in this upcoming battle. Sisera, having been informed of the Israelite troops on Mount Tabor, moves his massive army of chariots and foot soldiers to a temporary base at the Kaishon River, some 20 miles to the west of Mount Tabor and the Israelites. The disparity between these two forces is remarkable. Barak's army had no defense against the arrows and the spears that Sisera's army was going to throw at him. And they would not be able to throw any spears at the enemy in the chariots and on foot because they didn't have those kinds of war instruments. All they had was knives and sticks, hand-to-hand combat with those kinds of instruments was all they had at their disposal. The tension in the narrative begins to mount. Sisera sends his army out to teach these rebellious Israelites a lesson. The earth trembles as 900 chariots thunder across the plain. Deborah saw him coming from her perch up on Mount Tabor. She heard the wild cry of the soldiers and she heard the thunder that was rumbling on the horizon. A tremendous storm was brewing in the background, and she knew that the time had come. And so she gives the order to attack. Up, Barak, up, she shouts. Don't you see that the Lord is with you? Verses 14 through 16. And Deborah said to Barak, up. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. God kept his word and gave Barak the complete victory. 
The next chapter, chapter 5, gives us some of the details. Barak charges down that mountain with his 10,000 men. They come at the enemy like lions. Even the heavens join in the battle. Rain and hail struck Sisera's forces in the face. A storm erupted as the clouds of water burst above the Kaishon, and that river became a raging, foaming torrent. A wall of water swept across the plain carrying with it bushes and stones. The grassy field of Megiddo became a marsh, and soon the chariots of Sisera were struck, stuck in the mud up to their axles. Sisera's soldiers were totally confused and disorganized. The horses reared up and sank back down into the mud. Chariots tipped over. Finally, not a single enemy soldier was following orders. They were in disarray. They didn't know where to go or what to do. And as a result, the great army of Sisera was decisively defeated. Not a man was left, except for Sisera, the leader, who abandoned his chariot and fled on foot across the fields. Through Deborah's prodding, Barak gains the faith to act on God's word. And God acted on his behalf and gave the victory. But Barak is not going to get the credit for that victory. Verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. The Kenites were allies of the Canaanites. They were under a treaty or a peace with each other. So Sisera would, would feel safe in the home of this Kenite family. Verses 18 to 21. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Come aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Bedouin women had the task of pitching the tents in those days. And so Jael was an expert at pitching tents. She knew how to drive a tent peg. And she used it to treacherously kill Sisera. Verse 22, And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. 
Now, normally, the winning general would slay the losing general and get the glory for the victory himself. But in this case, Jael gets that honor. She has slain the losing general with a tent peg. She didn't slay him with a sword, with a warrior's weapon. She used a common household utensil that she was used to working with on a regular basis. She put an end to his life in a rather gruesome way. And Barak is discredited. A woman gets credit for killing the losing general, just as Deborah had predicted. In fact, two women get credit for this victory. Deborah, the one who instigated the battle, and Jael, the one who finished it. God delivered Israel from the Canaanite oppression that they were under for 20 years. And he used two women to do it. Verses 23 and 24. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. God used Deborah to put her broken world back together again. And in the long annals of Israel's history, Deborah alone stands out as the woman whom God used to take her nation out of bondage to Canaanite oppression. The name Deborah means honeybee and accurately describes a busy, efficient, productive woman. And just like a honeybee is capable of stinging a person, so Deborah was God's instrument to deliver this fatal sting to the armies of Sisera. She did it by proclaiming the word of God and propelling people to trust in God's word. And if we want God to use us to put our world back together again, we must do what Deborah did. We must proclaim the word of God, and then we must compel people to trust and obey the word of God. That brings us to our last point, finally, praise the Lord. And that's what Deborah does in chapter 5. We're not going to have time to read through that entire chapter, but I just want to summarize what Deborah does in the fifth chapter She gives all the glory and the praise and the honor to God. Even though she is a prophetess, even though she is a judge in Israel, she describes herself as simply a mother in Israel. She diminishes her own role, and she magnifies God's role in the victory. In verses 1 to 11, Deborah issues a call to praise the Lord. In verses 12 to 18, Deborah puts together a category of people, those who joined her in the battle and those who did not. In verses 19 to 31, Deborah describes the conquest in all of its details. And through it all, she points people to the Lord, to whom she gives credit for the victory. 
And we can do the same if we want God to use us to restore our broken world. Point people to him. Compel them to put their hope, their trust, their confidence in him. And then give all the glory and the praise to God. John Piper puts it this way. There are two kinds of magnifying. Microscope magnifying and telescope magnifying. The one makes a small thing look bigger than it really is. The other makes a big thing begin to look as big as it really is. And Piper says, we are not called to be microscopes. We are called to be telescopes. Christians are not called to be con men who magnify their product out of all proportion to reality, even though they know their competitor's product is more superior than theirs. There is nothing and no one superior to our God. And so the calling of a Christian, the calling of those who love God, is to make his greatness begin to appear as great as it actually is. That's what the task of a Christian is all about. That's why we exist. That's why we have been saved. As Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the greatness of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The whole duty of a Christian can be summed up in this. Feel, think, and act in a way that will make God look as great as he really is. Be his telescope for the world to see the infinite, starry wealth of the glory of God. Praise and magnify the Lord in all you say and do and think. Praise God even in times of pain and trial. And point people to Jesus every chance you get. If you want to ask God to use you to restore your broken world, then follow these three steps. Proclaim the word of God. Provoke people to trust in the word of God. And then praise the Lord with all your might. You don't have to be polished or famous. You can just be a mother in America. Or a father. Or a son. Or a daughter in America. But God can use you to change your world for the better. Commit your life to him. And then let him do it through you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this inspiring story of Deborah, a mother in Israel who was raised to an important position of leadership so that during a time of oppression 
When the nation had turned away from God and as a consequence were being punished by God for their idolatry and their sins, she was able to remind them of the word of God and as a honeybee to provoke them to put that word into action by trusting it and obeying it and as a consequence. Israel was delivered from their oppression and won the victory and returned back again to the worship of the one only true God. Help each of us in our own situation, in our families, in our communities, wherever God may place us in this coming week, to be a change instrument for good in the lives of the people that God brings to us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.